Uh, turn to the person next to you. Tell them your absolute favorite childhood show. Okay? Now, I'm not talking like fifth grade. I'm not talking like Jonas Brothers or anything. I'm talking like, uh, like what were you watching in like kindergarten? Okay, what was your show in preschool and kindergarten? All right, talk about that for just a second. <laughs> when I was a kid, this is crazy. This, this might date me a little bit. So there's a, there's a few shows that I really loved when I was a little kid. Uh, somewhere near the top of that list, maybe the top, was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Okay, loved that song. I could sing the theme song all the way through. Loved it. Um, uh, I was into uh, DuckTales, was huge for me. I still love DuckTales. I watch DuckTales all day long. And then there is, and this one's like, I don't even know, I think this still exists. I'm sure, sure it still exists. Uh, but this is like the granddaddy of them all, like the, the granddaddy of all like children's programming, Sesame Street, right? Okay. <laughs> Okay, I just I was like, I didn't know if that was still a thing, if people even watched Sesame Street. Sesame Street was like the, obviously, that was the one. That was the one that got everybody started. I don't remember a lot of Sesame Street. Obviously, I, you, you, you know the characters, Big Bird and Elmo and Cookie Monster and all those things. But as far as like actual content, I don't remember a lot. There's a couple that I remember that like really stick in my head, though. Uh, first one was the uh, near-far sketch with Grover. Anybody remember that one where Grover would teach near and far by running all the way up to the camera and be like, near? And then running all the way back and far and doing that over and over again, right? So uh, that, was, that was one. Uh, there was the cooperation song. Uh, I don't know if you remember that, but man, that, that was a jam. I loved the cooperation song anytime that came on. And then there's this one sketch they would do where they would, they would kind of test or try to teach you comparative skills to be able to like see different objects uh, and they would line them up to see if you could tell which one of these things was not like the other things. In fact, there's a song that went with that. I don't know if you remember. It was, one of these things is not like the other, okay? And one of these things does not belong. And there would be like a, a car and an airplane and a boat and a hot dog. And you had to like... You had to use your sleuthing skills to figure out which one of these things is not like the other, right? Uh, and that one is always like, for whatever reason, that's, that song has like stuck in my head, that little jingle, uh, for 35 years now. It's still, still up there, and I remember that. Uh, today, we are we're going to be continuing our little session through the Ten Commandments. So we've been walking through the book of Exodus, and now we're in like a little bit of a three-week period where we're... Uh, specifically exploring the beginning of God's giving the law as he gives them the Ten, the ten Commandments. So walking through each of those. And today, we're going to be talking about um, one of these things, one of these commandments that is not like the others, uh, that is different. In fact, we, we spent the first week, we covered three, the first three, which focus on um, our love for God. And then next week, we're going to talk about the last six, which talk about our love for people. And, but today, we're spending all our time just on one. Because it really is different in a lot of ways. There are a few markers that show us when we come to commandment number four that it is a little bit different from the others. First of all, it is the longest and most detailed commandment, at least in the Hebrew, if you read it in the Hebrew. Second, it is the only commandment with both a negative and a positive aspect. So every command has either a negative um, do not, uh, do not worship idols, negative command, or a positive, honor, like so don't do this or do this, honor your father and your mother, 
right? Uh, this is the only command that has both, both a negative command and a positive command in it. Um, third, it gets re-mentioned more than any of the other commandments in all of the Old Testament. So when you start to walk out through the Old Testament, of all the Ten Commandments, this is the one that actually they come back to more than any other. Now, you could argue that the first, first commandment and maybe kind of the second in it are, are probably, they are probably implied more than any others, but this one gets mentioned a lot. Uh, and then it seems to operate, this commandment, as a bridge between the first three and the last five. As we said, you have uh, the first three that are concerned with our relationship with God, these ones that are concerned with our relationship with people, which in reality, if you, if you know the Bible, you know that those two things are connected. We can't divorce those things. Uh, they, they operate together. But this one is kind of a bridge between love for God and love for people. There is something about this commandment that is really, really important. When you, when you read through, you can just see by the space given to it, very significant, and the way that it comes up over and over and over again in the Old Testament, and yet it is, of all Ten Commandments, easily the one that is most ignored by us. So we want to explore tonight why that is. Um, let's jump in. Exodus 20, verse 8, is where we'll be reading through tonight, or starting. Exodus 20, verse 8, here's how it starts. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's how it starts. Starts with this word, remember, which leads us actually to another unique trait about this commandment. This is the first of the Ten Commandments that was actually given before we got to the Ten Commandments. God has already given this commandment to his people all the way back in Exodus 16. Uh, just after God delivered his people from slavery, he brings the people of Israel through the Red Sea, and then they begin to walk through the wilderness. And at first, they're all excited because they've been saved from Egypt and they're out, but it doesn't take long before reality sets in and they start asking questions like, where are we going to find food out here? And they start to complain and they start to grumble against Moses and against God that you brought us out here to die in the desert. There's nothing for us to eat. And then God provides for them. He provides this substance called manna, which is a bread-like substance in the morning and quail in the evening. And he gives them this instruction with the manna. He says, every morning you are to gather enough for one person, two quarts for person, no more than that. Two quarts will get you through the day, and then you're just going to have to trust me that there will be more tomorrow. But, but a lot of people didn't listen to that. A lot of people gathered extra and stored it up just to make sure they'd be safe. And what they found is the next day when they came to that manna they saved up, it was rotted and full of maggots and all of those things because they had refused to trust God. Every day you only get two quarts because you're going to have to trust me, except for, except for day six. Day six, God tells them to actually get two, uh, two portions because on this seventh day, there will be no manna on the ground because you are not to go out and gather. You are not to go out and work or do anything else. He gives them different instructions on that because this seventh day is supposed to be special. And this is the first context, Exodus 16, where we hear this word, Sabbath. Exodus 16 says it like this, Understand that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he will give you two days worth of bread. Each of you stay where you are. No one is to leave his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. I was Exodus 16, and here we are in Exodus 20, in the middle of the Ten Commandments, and the people are called to remember the seventh day each week and to keep it holy. 
Remember means more than just call to mind. It's remember that implies action. It's like the importance of remembering a husband, remembering his anniversary. It's not just that he's supposed to know the date. It's that he's supposed to act with something in mind on that date. So it says you are to keep this day holy. And as you've heard us talk about the last few weeks, holy means set apart. It means something that is unique, something that is special to God. This seventh day of the week is special to God and therefore special to the people of Israel. This is the positive aspect of the, uh, of the command. Remember it. Keep it holy. So this is what they're supposed to do. Now we're about to get into what they're supposed to not do. Uh, verse 9. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock, or the resident alien who is within your city gates. Now, the word Sabbath actually comes from the Hebrew word that means uh, to cease or to end or to rest. And that's what this Sabbath is designed to be. That's kind of the goal. The name itself sums up the command. After working all week long, carrying on normal business and normal affairs of everyday life, this day is to be different. On this day, you stop. On this day, you cease. You rest from all that and devote it to Yahweh. Now, we live in an era of like the five-day work week. That's the common, normal thing. Not everybody practices that. Um, it's very common in our culture for people to find ways to kind of work round the clock yeah, in the evenings and, and get extra work done on the weekend. But it is at least customary. That's kind of the norm is to work five days and you're not necessarily expected to work on the weekend. So it's hard to grasp how big a deal this command is. This would have been uh, revolutionary in an agrarian society where many people are living day to day. When every day the crops need tending to in order to make sure there's food, or if you work like in town where every day most people, many people live day-to-day uh, -day working to make just enough to buy bread for their family on that day and to be able to bring that in. So this is, this is a huge deal. There was, there's no such thing as a five-day work week or a six-day work week. It's just, you just worked every day all the time, and especially for a nation consisting entirely of slaves. That's what these Israelites were just, just a few months earlier. For generations, they had been slaves. There's no weekend for slaves. There's no days off for slaves. All they did was work over and over again. And as slaves, all of their worth and all of their purpose consisted entirely in their productivity. If you're a slave, that's how that's measured. How much bricks can you make in a day? How many bricks can you make in a week? How much can you drag over there or, or bring over here? That's, that's all you are is a value symbol. How much is this slave worth? How much can they do? And here God tells these people that there will be an entire day every week where they will not be productive, where they are not allowed to be productive. This is huge. This is, 
This is the potential. This is a command that will shift how they think about themselves, their identity and their purpose. It's not built in how productive they can be and how much they're able to accomplish or get done. There's something else that's going on here. And it applies, if you notice in the command, to everyone in the nation, regardless of role or social status. Um, And this is where we get into the love of neighbor peace, uh, that that you see that God says this is for you to do, uh, to follow, and for your Uh, sons and daughters, and for your servants, and even your livestock. And this is really interesting. It is not just for the rich to sit back while their needs are taken care of. It's not just for the higher class, the upper class to sit back. No, you don't even let your servants work on this day. It's very fascinating. The first place that love of neighbor goes, right? We're going to get into honoring your parents. We're going to get into not stealing, and we're going to get into all these things. But the first Love of neighbor, little bridge command has to do with the way you treat your servants in this day, those who work for you, those who are under you. I think that that's kind of interesting. So you have these two aspects of the command. Don't work and do mark it as holy to God. Don't work and mark it as holy to God. Question, what does that mean? What specifically are they supposed to do and not do on this day? The text does not give a lot of specifics on this. And because of this, because people want specifics and they want to know, over time, there will be different groups that will come up and they will provide lots of specifics. People want to know, what am I allowed to do on the Sabbath? What am I not allowed to do? And so throughout history, the groups like the Pharisees will come up and go, well, we'll tell you what you can and can't do. We'll give you a long list of what you can and can't do, just so everyone's real clear on what they're allowed to do and what they're not to to do. And all these extra traditions would begin to spring up around the Sabbath, um, trying to bring clarity, but often bringing more burden to people uh, over the Sabbath. Uh, So we get some ideas. As we look at different texts in the Old Testament about what was allowed to to be done or not done, but there's not a lot of detail. We know that working, so when God says do not work, working includes things like gathering food for the next day because they weren't allowed to gather manna. We know that it means you cannot buy or sell in the market. This is something that is talked about in the prophets, that the people keep wanting to go into town and do business on the Sabbath. I got money to make today. I got, I got some deals to make, all those things. And the prophets speak out against that. Go, no, this day is set aside not for you to make money. This day is set aside for you to rest and to focus your eyes, your mind on the Lord. We know that you are not allowed to gather up like firewood on the Sabbath, because that becomes a very big deal in the next book in Numbers. So we know that there are some things that they are not allowed to do. We don't know exactly all the specifics. It seems to be essentially this, business as usual. That's what you're not allowed to do. Everything that you would normally be doing, that stops, because this day is unique. And what does it mean to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy? What does that mean, to to set this day apart as holy? Again, we're not giving tons of specifics, but we know it involves some acts of worship at the temple. There were some special sacrifices that were made at the temple. And then later, later when, when different synagogues would start popping up in different towns, because not everybody can get to the temple if you live 
If you live three days' journey away, you can't travel there. And so synagogues would pop up, which were kind of like uh, their version of like what a church is, a place where you would go and learn and read. And so the Sabbath day would be a day with, that you would gather together, and you would hear the Torah, the, the law, read to you, and you would pray and you would discuss that. So it was a time to focus on God and his word and prayer and all of those things. So those are kind of the, the main things, that's, but, but that's about all we know. We just know that business as usual stopped so that they could do two things, worship and rest. And in the last verse of our text, we are given the reason why. Verse 11. Here's why you keep the Sabbath holy. For Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days, and then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and declared it to be holy. Now, this is interesting. Because what seems to be the, the point that is being made here is, is that this principle for Sabbath goes back not just a few months before to Exodus 16. That's not actually the first time that this principle is kind of born. It goes all the way back to creation. And if you read in Genesis 2, it says, and God rested and he, and he set that day apart as holy, as a day of completion, as a way of saying, it's done. I've, I've done it all. Creation is set and so now I rest from my work because I've put everything in place. And so this is really important um, that it was, it was a law here, but it goes all the way back to the beginning. It is sort of baked into the fabric of creation that God engages in this rhythm, even though God doesn't need to. God doesn't need to rest. And therefore, since we are made in his image, we are meant to engage in this rhythm as well. And this is interesting because that means it is hard to dismiss the Sabbath and go, well, that's just something the Jewish people did. Well, that's just something that the old covenant people did. It's a little bit more difficult to do that because this, this practice predates the Jewish people. This idea predates the Ten Commandments. And so it's a little tougher to just push that aside and say, oh, we don't need to have to worry about that. That was just for their, their people and their time. In Deuteronomy's telling, there's actually a second reason giving for the Sabbath. I don't know if you know this. The Ten Commandments pops up in two different chapters in the Bible, Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5. Okay. Uh, Deuteronomy is essentially Moses' retelling of their rescue and re-giving of the law as they're about to go into the promised land. So Deuteronomy is kind of like a long sermon that recaps a lot of what they've gone into and explains kind of the theology behind some of it. But Deuteronomy 5 gives the Ten Commandments, and in Deuteronomy 5 it says, uh, here's a reason that you practice the Sabbath, because you once used to be slaves. And so since you were slaves and God has set you free, now you are, to, you are free to not work on the Sabbath. You are meant to not work. So whatever it was that used to define you doesn't anymore, that work and that production. And now you have been saved, and so now you can rest. And there's some level we see that Sabbath is rooted in creation, and it's rooted in redemption. And guess what? God saved them without them doing any work to get that done. That came free of charge. That came completely on the work of Yahweh and not on them. And so therefore, Sabbath rest is something God's people can do because God is the God who takes care of things. It's not something that depends on them. So they can rest because God has made it possible by saving them. So Sabbath for the people of Israel was rooted in creation and in their redemption. It was a huge part of their identity as the people of God. Exodus 31 will actually say Sabbath keeping is the sign of their covenant with God. It was something that was very serious, almost like, like a wedding ring. 
Alec used this illustration a couple weeks ago of when God comes down and, and comes to meet them at Sinai. There's almost this wedding ceremony where, where God basically gives his commitment to them and, and he asks if they will give their commitments to him and to keep his law and keep his covenant. Uh, if, if it is almost like a marriage, then Sabbath keeping is like the wedding ring. This is the marker that says we are God's people. We belong to him. Every other, every other culture works and goes about business as usual, but we, we're different. We rest and we depend on him. It was something that was taken very seriously. Sabbath keeping was not an option. This was not a, hey, if you feel like it, sleep in a little bit. Hey, if you need to catch up on a little bit of rest or things. No, no, no. You do this. This is what it is to be my people. If you don't do this, you're not part of my people. This was a really big deal and they faced major consequences when they chose to ignore it. And yet... We ignore it all the time. Question, is that okay? Is that all right that we ignore what seems to be a very, very critical command in the Ten Commandments? That's what we're going to talk about after the break. There's this story in Mark chapter 2 where Jesus and his disciples are walking along the road, and as they walk along... There's this field with field of like grain that's kind of growing next to the road, and, and they're kind of a little bit hungry, and so as they walk, some of the disciples reach over, and they just kind of pop some of the heads off of the grain there, and just pop those in their mouth, just to kind of eat as a snack as they go. Um, and somewhere along this line, as they're doing this, some Pharisees notice. How Pharisees notice this on the side of a road in the fields that they've got guys like popping out of the grain to spy on them. I don't know exactly how this works, but they, they see this and they go, Jesus, your own disciples are breaking the Sabbath. Look at them. They're harvesting grain right now. That's, li that's literally the, the accusation. They are working. They are harvesting grain right here. Now, this is not the only time that Jesus and the Pharisees uh, go head-to-head -head on the Sabbath. Jesus, uh, of all the days, the Sabbath was like his favorite day to tick the Pharisees off, apparently. Like, he, he constantly angered them on the Sabbath. Um, and, and a lot of that, sometimes it had to do with little things like this. Other times it would have to do with healing someone on the Sabbath. Uh, that someone would walk in and, and they would have some sort of ailment and Jesus would heal them and they would say, that's work. You just did work, you're breaking the Sabbath, and that proves that you're not really from God. And so this would happen a lot. And, and Jesus goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with them. In this specific story, he, he levels two accusations at the Pharisees. First is that they have completely missed the heart of the Sabbath. And he'll say this line, uh, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. Did you catch that in Exodus 16, what God says to them? Even though this is, this is like a law that they're to follow, all of those things. But he uses this phrase, um, on the seventh day you will not gather manna because I have given you the Sabbath. This is given to you. This is a gift. I'm giving that to you. And, and Jesus says, you, you somewhat missed the point when you try to tack on all these little extra rules and traditions all over. Jesus isn't speaking against the Sabbath. But all the, all the little rules that they've thrown on there, he says, you're, you're missing the point. It was given to, to man as a, as a chance to rest and to worship. It wasn't given as something so we could add all these extra little things to confine us. But the second accusation is even bigger. The second accusation is, is, or statement is simply this. He says, the son, of the, the son of man, which is Jesus' favorite term for himself, 
The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, I'm in charge here. What I say goes on the Sabbath. I can, I can decide whether my disciples can eat grain or anything else because I am Lord over this, which is actually a gigantic statement. I am Lord over the sign of the covenant between Israel and the Father. That's huge. Now, again, he is not necessarily dismantling or dismissing the Sabbath in this moment, but there is something big about this idea that Jesus is the one with authority over the Sabbath. He is not only the authority, but what we'll come to see is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath, that he fulfills what it is. Actually, Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire law, every of the, every one of the Ten Commandments, including all the other laws, and every bit of the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. What we mean by that is that you can almost just use that word, Jesus fills it up. So you picture like a wine, an empty wine glass on a table, and it's there and it may look pretty, but its purpose is not to look pretty. Its purpose is to hold wine. That's, it, it's pointing to, even by its shape, even by its being there, is this pointer that there's something coming to the table. And then the wine comes, and now it's served its purpose. Jesus has fulfilled it. Or, or the way that the New Testament often talks about it is that the Old Testament is a shadow. All the laws, uh, honor your father and mother and keep the Sabbath and animal sacrifices, all of these things were shadows of the true, uh, the true king that was coming. And so you, can, you might look at a wall or whatever and see a shadow, and you might be able to kind of make out a shape and say, I think I know what that is, but you don't fully know until you see the actual person who's casting the shadow. Jesus comes, and he fulfills all of these things. Now, how he fulfills the, the Sabbath specifically, we'll, we'll talk about in just a little bit. But it's good to know this, that Jesus fulfills all the law, and what that means is that he lives it out perfectly so that he can then die in our place for us, and, and that he fulfills everything that it is supposed to do, which means uh, our status before God, a person's status before God, no longer depends on how well they keep the law. Their status before God depends on whether or not they are connected to this man, Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the law. And because when he comes, he fulfills it, there are certain parts of the law that actually fall away. Uh, that, that kind of uh, disappear a little bit, um, specifically the ceremonial aspects like animal sacrifice. Animal sacrifice is no longer necessary because the whole point of animal sacrifice was to, it was a pointer to this truth that I am not holy and that I cannot come before a holy God in my sin and something has to die to pay for that sin. And so every time they, they killed an animal as a sacrifice, it was showing this truth, but that was just a shadow of the reality, the ultimate sacrifice for sin, which would be Jesus. Or circumcision, which was the major marker of the people of God before the Mosaic Law and even through the Mosaic Law, that all the Jewish people, all the Jewish men were circumcised. That was a sign that they belonged to God. And when Jesus comes, that's no longer the sign. The sign is now the Holy Spirit that Jesus gives. That's, that's what marks a person as belonging to God. And so there are some of the parts that kind of go away. And the question is, is the Sabbath one of those things? Is, is Sabbath-keeping one of the things that kind of moves away, or is it one of the things that kind of stays and remains, even though Jesus has fulfilled it, that we still try to follow those things? I believe, as I study through and read through, that the Sabbath has been fulfilled by Jesus and, and that, therefore, it is no longer binding on our lives today. 
that we are no longer confined to, to obey the Sabbath regulation. One of the ways that we gauge whether a law from the Old Testament is still binding on us as Christians today is to look at the New Testament and see if that is repeated again. Uh, so things like obeying your parents, commandment number five, we see that come up again in the New Testament. So we know we, we still do that, okay? Idol worship is condemned in the New Testament just like it is in the Old Testament. So we, we still refuse to worship idols. Sabbath keeping, obeying the Sabbath is never actually brought up uh, in the New Testament as a command. Like never once are Christians told to make sure to keep the Sabbath. Basically, the New Testament does not really talk about it very much. Um, And one of the things we notice is that the early church actually switches their holy day from the Sabbath, which would have been Saturday, to Sunday. That, That that becomes the most significant day of the week. They change it to Sunday because that is the day that Jesus resurrected from the dead. That becomes the new Lord's Day. If the Sabbath was something instituted at creation... Sunday becomes all about recreation, the day that God started remaking the world all over again, starting with the resurrection of his son. This is actually, some, some people would say that this is actually fairly solid evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, because you have this group of people who have built their whole identity out of honoring a specific day of the week, much of their identity out of a tradition that runs deep, that runs 1,400 years deep, and like that, this group of people just change it. Like if, if all of a sudden like this, the entire state of Oklahoma started celebrating Christmas on December 26th instead of December 25th, like people would have to ask questions. What happened? Something significant had to have taken place for this whole group of people to just, after hundreds and hundreds of years, just decided we're not doing the 25th anymore, it's the 26th. And, and, and Christmas doesn't even actually really compare. Our traditions today don't compare to their cultures and their traditions and the way those shaped who they were as a people. And so there are a lot of people who go, the very fact that this group of Jewish people changed their holy day like that on a dime after 1,400 years going the other way is a sign that something crazy must have happened on a Sunday. And we got to deal with what that crazy thing was. I would say it is the resurrection. That's what the Bible says. But those people who don't want to believe in the resurrection, they have to come to terms with the fact that something crazy happened on that to- around that time to make all of these people switch. So they switch their day to worship. And there are some who would say, well, then Sunday is the new Sabbath day. But, but it doesn't seem like it's really pressed like that. In fact, Paul seems to speak specifically against using the Sabbath or any specific day as a marker of true Christian obedience. We see this in Romans 14, 5 through 6, where Paul is talking about these different parts of the faith that are, are somewhat matters of conscience, like it's a, it's a matter of you kind of following your conscience rather than, rather than a specific law or rule that we have to follow. So here's what Romans 14 says. One person judges one day to be more important than another day. Someone else judges every day to be the same. And Paul doesn't say one's right, one's wrong. He says, let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. Whoever observes that day, observes it for the honor of the Lord. And the implication is the one who does not observe that day uh, chooses intentionally. I, I won't do this. The goal is actually not to be thoughtless or unintentional or who cares. It's that, that we think and we plan. Do I want to treat this specific day as a different day that I have to honor specifically? Or, or can I kind of honor every day 
towards that means a little bit. Paul seems to kind of say it's somewhat up to you a little bit, as long as you're thinking through it and doing it to the Lord. This one gets more explicit, though. In Colossians 2, 16 through 17, Paul says this, Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a, here's the word we talked about, these are a shadow of what was to come, but the substance is Christ. So Paul's not against the Sabbath, by the way. Paul's okay with people Sabbathing and, and not working on this day and using Saturday as a go or, or, uh, to, to gather at the synagogue or those kinds of things. But Paul says, but you do not, this is not a matter of like Christian obedience. So you don't hold someone else to that standard. You don't judge them. That is a shadow of what was to come. The real substance, what Sabbath was always pointing you to, was Jesus. So, we are no longer bound by specific days or specific commands about what activities we can or cannot do on that days or cannot, cannot do on that day. So, question, does that basically mean that we can kind of just run our weeks however we want to then? That we can just kind of live our week in whatever schedule or order or operation we want to? I don't know if that's true. I don't know if it, if it works that way either, though I don't think we are bound to keep the Sabbath like they did or even bound to keep Sunday exactly like they did. I don't know if we can just say, well, then fine, just kind of live however you want any day of the week, however you want to do it. Your own rhythms, your own schedule, that's fine. That doesn't quite seem to be the case either. Because even though the specifics of Sabbath regulation are fulfilled, these two aspects of Sabbath that we talked about, worship and rest, worship and rest, Worship and rest over and over again. These two aspects will always be necessary for us as followers of Jesus. Those two things don't go away. Let's talk about worship. The early church, as we said, did not enforce the keeping of the Sabbath, but it did retain the idea of a specific day in the week that was set aside for corporate worship. That is a specific day of the week that was set aside for God's people to gather together and sing to God and hear from his word and pray. And this is something that they practice over and over again. It is sometimes said that for Christians, everything is worship. For a Christian, everything that we do is worship to God. That's not true. Not everything is worship. You know, I can worship God just as much as out on the golf course as I can at church. I can worship God just as much out in nature as I can in church. That's not true. Now, I'm not saying that those things can't be worshipful. And it is true that our whole lives ought to be one of worship. This is Romans 12, 2, that we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. This is our reasonable act of worship, Paul says. Okay, so our obedience is worship. But to say that everything is worship, it's not the same. For me to sit and sing a hymn to God with my brothers and sisters is not the same as, as chipping up onto the green. And to call those both the same, those are both, you know, both kind of worship, as long as I have a good attitude when I do it. As long as I don't cuss when I miss, right? Like that's, no. There's something that is unique about this moment where I gather together with God's people to worship. Listen, every day, every day, the world gives you a thousand messages about what is important and about what makes you important, about what deserves your attention and about what things you should care about and about what things should have your affections and about what you should bend your life and all of your effort towards, and almost none of it is true. 
Almost everything that you are told constantly through the stuff you listen to and the things you watch and the world around you about what is important and what matters and what you should give your life to, almost all of it is untrue. But if that is all we ever hear, if that is all we ever listen to, you're going to start believing it. It's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time. I always say there's a reason. We just had the Super Bowl this last Sunday. There's a reason that companies pay between six to eight million dollars for just 30 seconds of airtime, because they know that the stuff that you hear and see over and over again is going to start to affect the things that you believe and the things that you desire and the things that you want. So I need a time and a space that is carved out in my week to gather together with others who know what I know who believe what I believe, that all the lies that the world is telling us about what matters most, that those things aren't true. I need to be able to gather together in this place to be reminded of what is really true. That there's a God who stands at the center of things, the maker and sustainer of the universe, the maker and the sustainer of my own soul, and that what is most important is him. And that my worth is found not in the things I do and not in the things that I have and not in the experiences that I can create for myself, but they are found in him. That my joy is not found in what I can gather or what pleasure I can gain for myself, but that my joy is found in him. I need a space that is protected and guarded that I can gather together to do. That's what Sunday morning worship is. Sunday morning worship is like an oasis in the desert. This time where I gather together to be fed and to drink from the living water. And listen, if I am trudging through the desert and someone points out an oasis to me as I make my way through and goes, you can go right over there to find water, I don't respond with, do I have to? Do I have to, though? Do I have to go get some water? And I don't actually just go to the oasis when I can fit it in my schedule. No, man, I need that. That's critical for my survival. I make, I make every effort to get to that oasis. I, I want to be there. I don't, I don't want to, to skip that or miss out on that. And this is something that is so true for us that there's, there's something that is significant and critical to the gathering together with God's people. It's one of the reasons we talk about commitment to the church a lot. Hebrews 10.25 says this, let us, not, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. We need each other to encourage one another, to spur one another on. And I need to find ways, not just once a week, I would say, although that that really is important. But I I think it's also important that I find ways to carve into my daily life opportunities to fix my mind on Jesus through his word, through prayer, through the music I listen to, through conversations with other brothers and sisters. I need to, in a world that's given me lots of different messages, I need to carve out a space, a little oasis in my day where I can get living water, where I, can, where I can hear the truth and be reminded of what is true. That's the first aspect, worship. The second is this, rest. Isaiah 40, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, says that God is an everlasting God, and he does not grow faint, and he does not grow weary, and he never gets tired. He keeps going, and that is a beautiful and true attribute of God, and it is not true about you or I. We cannot keep going. We cannot last forever. We are finite creatures, and we have limits. As much as we want to try to pretend that we don't, we have limits. We can't go forever. We need rest. And yet for a lot of us, that very word, rest, 
break conjures up like these almost mixed feelings in us, at best mixed feelings. For some of us, the idea almost feels like a dirty word, something to feel guilty about, to stop and rest. It's, it's something that I need to avoid or something like that. Imagine for a second um, that, that you were to experience this, that I was to tell you that this law was binding on you. What if I had stood up here during the second and a half and said, guess what? The Sabbath is a command that you have to follow if you are going to follow Jesus. It is something you have to do 24 hours every day. You need to set aside all that you're doing and stop. You cannot do homework. You cannot write papers. You cannot work for your job on those days. You need to stop. How would you respond if I said that to you? Cannot be productive for 24 hours. There's probably some of you in here that think that that sounds incredible, if time could stop, right? Like if we can just press pause on life and that paper's not due on Monday, then yeah, I'm for it, right? If we can just press pause on life and, and my boss isn't gonna ask me where I was on that day, then yeah, I'm for it. But, the, but as, as good as that sounds, you're probably there's something in you just going, but it's not realistic. I mean, who can really like, live like that? How could I get all the stuff done in my life that needs to get done? For some of you, this is more than just kind of like, ah, that seems unrealistic. For some of you, if I told you you could not work from sundown tomorrow, Friday, all through Saturday, that, that thought would almost terrify you. Your heart rate maybe even goes up just thinking about it. All the things, the activities, all the, all the assignments, all the projects that would start to stack up as you just set it to a side for 24 hours and just looked at it, thinking about how it's got to get done, but you can't. For some of you, that, that very idea brings some level of anxiety. That's not even a possibility. I don't have time to just sit around. All the plates that I have spinning in my life right now that I run from one to one to make them all happen, all of those things would come crashing down. And for some of you in here, if you're really honest, it doesn't even matter if you've got anything to do. The idea of sitting and resting for 24 hours is scary, not because you have stuff to do, just because if you're honest with yourself, you can't stop. Can't stop. Something in you has to keep going, and, and, and maybe, maybe you know why. Maybe it's because you know if you stop, you're going to have to sit alone with your thoughts for a little bit, and that terrifies you, and you don't want to do that, that your body might stop, but your mind's not going to stop, and your heart's not going to stop. Maybe you don't even know why it is that you really struggle to stop and to rest. And here's the question, why, if that's you, why, why does the idea, if I told you I had to stop for 24 hours, why is it that that makes some of us anxious? Why is it that that makes some of us feel almost like burdened and wearied? Why is it that we struggle with that and cannot bring ourselves to rest? Though I know in this room right now, there are a lot of you who feel exhausted. You feel, you feel thin and stretched to your breaking point. You, you have been redlining to the point of near burnout, and yet you cannot bring yourself to rest, even when you try, as I said, you may lay down at night and know it's time to go to bed, but as soon as your head hits that pillow, your mind starts spinning and your heart starts racing. What is it 
that makes it so hard to rest, that rest almost feels like poison to avoid, that it might undo you a little bit. You want to know why? I don't know why so many people in our culture struggle to rest. I think Justin Early, a writer that I really like, I think he says it best. He says, at the core of our unrest is the belief that we sustain the world and that God does not. At the core of our unrest, the reason I can't stop is there is somewhere deep inside of me this belief that I keep the world going and that God doesn't. And if I stop, maybe everything else will stop. Or more often, maybe this is more accurately the way to say it, that if I stop, my specific world stops. That if I'm not productive, if I'm not accomplishing things, then then where's my value? What am I good for? If I'm not getting anything done, for many of us, our busyness is proof to ourselves and to others that I'm important. And I like to talk about how busy I am and how stressed I am because that just displays to you that I'm a very busy and important person. I've got a lot of stuff going on and, and hopefully, hopefully it's convincing me as well that I'm important, that I'm that, that I matter. It's our way of trying to justify our existence. Look at all that I do. Look at how needed I am. And if I stop, all the plates that will come crashing down. So one of the key benefits of Sabbath rest is that like worship, it reminds me of the truth, only in the opposite way. Worship reminds me of what is most important, of who is most important, that is God. Who is essential, that is God. Rest, Sabbath rest reminds me of who's not. That's me. That I am not all that important. It reminds me that the world keeps spinning even when I stop because it's not dependent on me, it's dependent on him. Sometimes what Sabbath rest, rest reminds me, and this can be a hard one, sometimes taking a break and resting reminds me of this, I can't get it all done. That's a hard truth, but let me tell you something, that is true. You can't get it all done. You can't just buy a bunch of life hacks and super scheduling and all of those things, get everything done that you intended to get done. I couldn't get everything done this week. All the stuff that I had on my list, there's stuff stuff left undone right now. And that drives me crazy. And yet there's this reality that reminds me, I'm not God. I'm limited. I'm finite, and I need that. Otherwise, I would start to act like I can. Otherwise, if I'm not taking a break to rest, then I begin to believe the lie that it all depends on me, or that my worth and value at least depends on me getting everything done, which is a recipe for all kinds of disaster. When I begin to believe that my worth or my value depends on me getting stuff done, when I begin to believe that the world keeps spinning because of me, that is a recipe for pride That is a recipe for anxiety. That is a recipe for mental breakdown and for exhaustion. So I've got to find a way, even if it's not actually following the Sabbath itself. I've got to find a way to work these two things, worship and rest, into my life. I'll show you this thing that a bunch of you guys have seen a lot and some of you have never seen before. We call this our formational rhythms pyramid, and it's right there. Um... Like magic, like clockwork there, we got that down. This is, we, we call this our formational rhythms pyramid, and, and we didn't come up with this. A guy named Tim Castillo came up with this. Uh, but we really do believe that this is a significant 
uh, tool for understanding how discipleship and our relationship with God and our service of God works. And that is this idea that at the top, you have these missional rhythms that we are all called to engage in as followers of Jesus. We ought to be serving one another. We ought to be serving the church. We ought to be trying to share the good news of Jesus with people around us. We ought to be praying for people. We ought to be doing all these things to serve and live on mission. But the reality is, if I do not have certain habits in place to make sure that I am growing close to God, then all my running around trying to do things for God is eventually going to collapse and fall apart. That it is easy to do a lot of things for God without actually knowing the God that you're doing things for sometimes. If you don't take time to spend. And so we have this thing called spiritual rhythms. And those include things like prayer and seeking holiness or consistently reading the Bible or fasting or joining in community like small groups. These are things that help keep my heart in tune with God so that it is easier, so that I am uh, full of him and able to be able to serve God and other people better. Okay? But underneath that, actually, there's another level, which is personal rhythms. And this has to do with things that are just basic needs and the, the basic design that God has placed in us as, as human beings. As human beings, we cannot go forever without sleep. We need proper sleep. And so this is a rhythm that we encourage students to make sure that they, are, they, they have a rhythm of getting proper sleep each day. We, we cannot be those who are addicted to our phones because if I am addicted to my phone, I am distracted from many things. I am distracted from what is actually going on in my own heart. I am distracted from the needs of people around me, and I am distracted from what God might be trying to say to me and what he is calling me to do. And so if I live my life glued to a screen, then I am unable to do those things. And so if I am not following certain personal rhythms well to make sure that I'm growing, then I am not going to be able to follow spiritual disciplines well, and I'm not going to be able to serve God very well. The practice of Sabbath keeping, and when I say Sabbath keeping, again, I am not talking about a specific day. I'm talking about marking out time in your week for worship and rest, the regular rhythm of worship and rest. The practice of Sabbath keeping falls, let me just actually, you take a guess in your mind, which category does that fall in? Where does Sabbath keeping fall? I would say that Sabbath keeping actually probably falls like right on the overlap, right on the line between personal and spiritual. That, that what Sabbath keeping does in worship is it keeps my mind on the Lord. It, it lets me focus in on Him, but it also gives actual rest that I need, the, the the, the rest that I need to continue moving and to continue moving forward. And if you do not find ways to mark out worship and rest in your schedule, I'm just telling you, it is going to be hard for you to love God and love people well. You are setting yourself at a disadvantage when it comes to following Jesus if you are not finding the rhythms of worship and rest into your life. And it might not look like a 24-hour period. And it doesn't have to look, I don't think it has to look like what they did back then, which is that you just have to kind of hang out at home and maybe go to the synagogue and talk and those things, but you can't do anything. No, no, Listen, they lived in an agrarian society where everyone is working like hard manual labor out all day long. Most of us are actually working in a different way. We're not using like hard manual labor, and so sometimes we need to get out. We need to get out when we're on our days of rest and go for a walk. Or go play some basketball with some friends. We need to do some other things. There's this rabbi named Abraham Heschel who says, uh, those who work with their hands should Sabbath with their mind, and those who work with their minds should Sabbath with their hands. 
And I actually kind of like that. I, th- I think that there's something to that. But, but it can't just be me playing basketball. And, and, and I don't think it should be just me sleeping in all day or, or sitting at home and just watching Netflix all day. I, I want to be intentional. I want to I do things that, that give me joy and give me life. I find that actually if I watch Netflix all day, I don't feel rested at the end of the day. My mind is still spinning like crazy. My heart is distracted by lots of other things. I want things that focus my attention on Jesus and that give me joy in doing these things. But I'll just tell you this. um, This won't be easy. I want to recommend that you try this, that you try to set aside a day uh, this week and this next week to focus on this, but it will not always be easy. This is not an easy thing for us to do as human beings, and it may, for some of you, feel impossible at first. by the way, you won't be able to do this all the time. There will be times when, when your schedule catches up and you're not able to, but to try to make a practice of this. But I want you to know you should, um, even if it does feel hard, even if it feels impossible. And there are some of you in here who are especially tempted to put your identity in what you can accomplish and what you can do. And this is going to be tough, but it's going to be necessary. And there are some of you in here um, who always feel the need to prove yourself. Maybe it's to yourself. Maybe it's to God to prove that you're like worthy of him, to prove that you're good enough to, be, to belong to him. Maybe it's to your parents. Maybe it's to others. You always feel this like nagging need to show that you're enough, to show that you matter, to show that you, that you are worth something. And this is going to be hard for you because you're going to have to spend a day that goes, my worth depends not on anything I accomplished today. I'm just going to rest and trust in him. In fact, that's why I think actually this bottom level, the foundation matters so much. This core truth, this is the gospel truth that we have value that is given and not earned. That as a follower of Jesus, if you know Jesus, your value has nothing to do with your grades, has nothing to do with you being top of the class, has nothing to do with how much you make. All of your value and worth is tied up in this. The Son of God loved you and gave himself for you. That's more than anything else. And, and if a person is going to be able to live this kind of life out in these habits, you will never be able to fully rest until you believe this truth, that your worth has nothing to do with what you get done. You're going to be able to need to know and believe that truth of the gospel, that you are saved by him and that you are loved by him, and that's where those things come from. And that's why some of you find this really hard, because if we're honest, there are some of you in this room who are not just physically tired, You are soul-tired. You are spirit-tired, down to your core, and you could get all the rest in the world and never feel rested. Because there are some of you in here that life has been one long scramble for significance and meaning. One long running around trying to prove to yourself that you matter, trying to prove to others, trying to find some sort of purpose or significance. And if that's you, I want you to hear this invitation from Jesus tonight. This is an invitation that Jesus gives to all of us from Matthew 11, 28 and 29. He says this, and he says this to you. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Listen, 
if you do not find your rest in Jesus, because here's what's happening. All of your scrambling around in life, what is ultimately going on deep down inside of us is we are trying to find something that makes us right with our maker. Something that proves because our, our rest is found in God, the one that we are designed for, and we're trying to find something to fill that. Jesus says, real rest for your soul comes from finding me. Listen, you can work your tail off and retire at 50 and spend the last 30, 40 years of your life doing nothing but fishing and playing golf and hanging out at your beach house, and you will not be rested. You'll be just as tired as you were at 22. Because your soul will not find the rest that it is longing for. That rest only comes in one place. And this is why Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. Because the Sabbath was pointing to this need for rest. Hebrews 4 tells us that that Sabbath rest that we were all longing for, that everyone was made for, that that Sabbath rest comes in Jesus alone. And that when we are able to come to him in faith, all of my working to try to prove that I'm good enough for God or good enough for others or good enough to love myself, all of that can go away. Because Jesus has done all the work for me. All my work stops because he's done it for me. I want to invite you, all of you, I want to invite you to experience Sabbath rest, trusting in who Jesus is and what he's done. And for those who do not know him, I want you to hear his invitation to you tonight. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you tired of living this running around, scrambling, trying to make things work? It's not going to work. Jesus says, here's the answer. Come to me. Come find rest, not just physical rest, not just emotional rest. Rest for your very souls is found in trusting me. That's what I want for you tonight. Let me pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for the gift of rest. And we thank you that we are free to take it because all the work is done in Jesus. We don't have to prove ourselves for you to love us. We don't have to earn our way to you. It's not significant to earn our way to other people's approval. Thank you for loving us. And I pray for my friends in this room that those who don't know you would hear the, uh, the kind voice of Jesus whispering to them tonight, calling them to himself. Please, Lord, open their hearts to experience that. And for my brothers and sisters who know you in here, I pray, Lord, that you would help them to trust that, to trust the gospel identity that they've been given in Jesus and to rest in that and to find ways to rest in that. Grow us in this, Lord. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen.